mug and boot. Wheels a mug and bang. Eyes a mug and splash. a mug and boot. This is hell. And I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen, and joining him in the producer's booth is Rebecca Ridenauer. The most surprising thing to me about the interviews listeners and staff have selected for our ongoing series of best of 2023 interviews is that some of them are the most in-depth and longest interviews we did all year. Go figure. Our listener and staff wants to hear the longest interviews we did all year, so let's get right to today's Best of 2023 discussion from June 14th, when we spoke with historian Joe Goldie, who was on to talk with, uh, to us about her uh, Boston Review article, The Earth for Man, Redistrib- Redistributing Land... Wow, that was harder to say than I thought, was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today, which is adapted from her uh, book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. After we play our interview with Joe, we will hear from another historian, our very own Dr. Seb Vupper, who will deliver another past inside the present when he provides us with a historical context from the past so we can have a better understanding of our present. Will, what's Seb talking about this week? Uh, Seb returned once again to the Holy Land and the history of how Israel came to be. This week is mandatory, mandatory Palestine, that is, and the Balfour Declaration. Wow. So again, send all of your hate mail to Seb yeah. at com. Light material. <laughs> exactly. We'll also have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. What is this week's question from hell again, Will? Uh, this week's question from hell is, now that Henry Kissinger is dead... Who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? And we'll tell you not only what's happening on this week's bonus Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell, but we'll also share with you uh, which interviews we will be playing next week here on This Is Hell, the best of 2023. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. And if there's one thing that billions around the world desire, something they wish for but increasingly lack, It's access to land. With special thanks to Hugh and Ashwin, here's our conversation with historian Joel Goldie from this past June on land redistribution. This is hell. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell. There was a time when the world was actually coming together to figure out how to end human suffering, how to end poverty, how to end famine, how to stop a system of haves and have-nots. And if it has happened before, you'd figure it can happen again. Even the wealthiest, most powerful states can work to end injustice. And a big step toward ending that injustice is 
land redistribution. Here to explain, data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts and It Should Be Today. The essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at joegoldie.com and follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Goldie. Welcome to This Is Hell, Joe. Hi, Chuck. It's such a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since you told me that you're friends with Haim. That really, <laughs> it really solidified the whole thing. So I want to uh, shout out to the whole city of Chicago, um, to the Urban Theory Lab at the University of Chicago, to uh, the historians at North Northeastern and Loyola and UIC and the non-historians and urban activists at the Mess Hall and the Hideout and all of those other places. I spent two wonderful years in Chicago a while ago now, and I learned so much about land politics just from hanging out with people who had been educated on the streets and in the city thinking about housing. So in some way, this book goes back to them. A lot of them are thanked in the very lengthy uh, gratitude list at the beginning of the book. <laughs> it's amazing. I bet that you struggled over that whole list of gratitude. I bet you thought, even when you submitted it, you forgot somebody. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm sure I did. And apologies to those of you who, who were forgotten. You're still in my heart. So you write that in 1951, officers of the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO, gathered in Rome to contemplate their founder's mission to serve the decolonizing nations of the world by helping peasant farmers maintain control over their own land. That same year, the organization had relocated away from its previous headquarters in Washington, D.C., a move away from the halls of power, but toward the emerging power centers of New Delhi, Cairo, Moscow, Beijing, Jakarta, and Manila, and symbolically, at least, toward Mexico City, Santiago, Antigua, and Lima. So the world was helping peasant farmers and moving away from the planet's major power centers, not finding profits for uh, multinational corporations that occupy those metropolitan centers of global power and dominance. They weren't focused on those multinational corporations' bottom line as much as they were focused on trying to help out peasant farmers. Despite these initiatives happening in a world in thrall with markets and capitalism at the time, how likely or unlikely would such projects be today, Joe? Is decentralizing power and empowering peasants and giving peasant farmers the power to feed themselves very much a dream of the past? Well, historians don't like to predict the future. And on the other hand, there's nothing that predicts the future like history. If you just describe how we got to the present and all of the sorts of things that have happened in the past, you've got about as good of a machine for predicting the future as we're ever going to get. Um, so, you know, I think you, you ask the right question. Could this happen today? We're living in a moment, uh, as you referenced in the beginning of the show, of land back movements, um, which are coordinated by international, uh, very sophisticated indigenous movements asking for the right to talk about what how land law works and what you can build and what you can't build and how you can pollute and how you can't pollute. Um, those movements are... You know, from my point of view, from a historian, we're living in a rather extraordinary moment um, that's probably unmatched since this period of time that I'm I'm writing about around 1945. Uh, it's another moment of time where you see international grassroots movements coming together. And this started 
10 or 20 years ago with the Via Campesina and uh, farmers in the developing world organizing. They were joined and, and paralleled by indigenous movements in Canada and in Latin America, landless people's movements. This is all of the people who were left out of the land redistributions of the 1945 era that I write about uh, are coming together and starting to say, uh, let's have a conversation about sustainability that includes us. Let's have a conversation about climate change that includes the very real possibility of the farmers who pr produce 85% of the food supply being ejected from where they've been living and tending the earth. Um, let's have a conversation about imagining a right to land, a right to occupancy, a right to live, a right to build a house, a right to grow your own food that encompasses uh, the vast majority of the world's poor people in Asia and Africa and Latin America, as well as in the borderlands all over North America. You write that in 1943, international delegates had assembled in Hot Springs, Virginia, to spell out the work of the future United Nations. Meanwhile, British, American, and Indian soldiers clashed with soldiers of the Third Reich, whose land settlement policies were based on the philosophy of Lebensraum, or uh, living space, the conceit that a growing German population would require more land, the subjugation of other peoples, and the creation of farms and colonized territories where German peasants would settle. Meanwhile, millions of Bengalis were starving in the latest of the famines that had plagued the subcontinent under British rule. Up to three million perished in 1943 alone. So did British imperialism cause the deaths of millions while German imperialism was killing millions? Were the enemies of the Third Reich engaging in imperialism, invasion, occupation, and subjugation, just like the Third Reich was during World War II? So it, it, they were, and it's a long story. It's a story that's been told very ably by a number of historians as well as journalists that uh, stretches back through the 18th and 19th centuries. Famine was not endemic in India over the course of the 19th century. Uh, so, sorry, it wasn't endemic in India before the before the British arrived. Uh, famine became endemic in India over the course of the 19th century with death tolls of about 30 million um, over the course of the century by some estimates. Um, and the, the famines were ongoing. We now know that one of the largest famines was happening in the midst of the Second World War, even while the British were fighting against German imperialism. So all of, all of the European nations had blood on their hands for the sins of empire. All of their empires had been characterized by famines, by forced labor, labor by the enslavement of indigenous populations, uh, and by systems of uh, systems of government which were the opposite of democracy. They took political powers out of local districts. They made sure that native populations didn't have control over their. Uh, over their government. I'm simplifying, um, of course, there were there were enormous debates over this over the course of the 19th century and many reform movements. But the fact is that when we arrived in 1945 and people in Germany are preaching Germany for Germans and some people in America are preaching America for Americans, it's a very radical thing to say the earth for man. And let me translate that into a modern idiom because that sounds a bit wrong to our ears. The earth for humanity, the earth for humans, the earth for life. 
Let's have the earth for life, not America for Americans and Germany for Germans. Let's rethink all of those rules and all of those systems of government in a more inclusive way. So it's worth thinking about how that came about. It's not just charitable. It was a it was a settlement reached at the point of misery and famine and the point of a gun with post-colonial rebellions around the world. So that's the story that I'm telling. That's why it's called a war. The title of the book is The Long Land War. And I'm talking about a century of or more of post-colonial struggles against empire in Africa, Latin America, North America, and Asia, a global struggle over the question, should empire be allowed to confiscate land rights around the globe, or should those rights remain with indigenous people, should remain with native people world over? And uh, I think we've lost sense, uh, lost a little bit of sense in our telling of empire, of the fact of this pivot in 1945 that happens with the help of the United Nations, coordinated with, by the United Nations, which does some of the work. There's still so much left work left to do, but it does some of the work of managing a conversation about a right to occupancy the world over. And you, you write about the reality and inevitability of peasant revolution around the globe at the time. So was this an attempt to, uh, by the most powerful nations, the most wealthy nations in the world, uh, to address that inevitable revolution before it was forced or imposed upon uh, government leaders? Or was this something maybe even worse? Was this a co-opting of that revolution? Yeah, my story is not about a co-optation. My story is actually, uh, it's it's about the hand of Europe being forced to a degree and a compromise, which wasn't the worst of the compromises being made at the time, and actually gives us a blueprint for some pretty radical kinds of legislation and government uh, institutions that could shape the future uh, in light of the kinds of grassroots movements that are going on today. So the story that I tell is how uh, in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the FAO is founded in uh, Montreal um, uh, and then moves to Rome, as you said, to be closer to the developing nations of the world. Now, we don't hear a lot about the FAO in North America. In the United States, we don't hear that much about the FAO. We, we hear about the United Nations and we hear about uh, the housing of refugees, we hear about UNESCO, we hear about other international organs like the World Bank. Nobody wants, nobody is talking about a world without the World Bank except crazy radicals, right? Uh, liberal institutions are fine with the World Bank, all of these organs of the UN. Well, the FAO is one of the most important institutions if you're in a developing country, especially a developing country whose production is primarily agricultural. So when the FAO is founded, who should found the FAO and who should be in charge of the FAO is a very interesting question. And the people who are appointed at the FAO are uh, you know, essentially they're left liberals from, from the United Kingdom, uh, many of whom the United Kingdom and its empire, they're Canadians, they're Australians. They have certain sympathies with being on the outskirts of empire. They're still white men, but they're white men who have been involved in conversations about hunger during the Great Depression, hunger and nutrition uh, and plans to provide school lunches to school children. So they're, they're interested in some sort of a welfare campaign, and they can imagine a state-run institution which is supporting the people. Uh, they're also 
increasingly aware that they're living in a world which is exploding in terms of post-colonialism. I mean, Gandhi has been running his uh, rent strikes and hunger strikes and campaigns for political freedom for decades at this point. Um, He's assassinated in the first years after 1945, but his legacy goes on with other activists in India. India is newly free. Um, and then dozens of, of former imper- imperial colonies in Africa uh, will claim their freedom in the decade following the Second World War. Uh, so the whole world looks like a kind of powder keg. And there are questions about how these countries will develop and will they um, will they come under the influence of communism? Will they come under the influence of Europe or North America? The stewards of the fowl take all of these con- conversations seriously. And what they hear from the post-colonial world is that the post-colonial world is alarmed about the confiscations of empire. After all, when France and Germany and Belgium and uh, Great Britain went around the world, claiming colonies, one of the first things that they did was to claim that they owned the land. They owned they owned the right to tax all of India. So if India is going to be free and successful, it needs the land back. It needs uh, all of Latin America needs the land back. And what we mean by the land back in this case is that the descendants of like the, the few families who run the haciendas across uh, Latin America, the descendants of... Um, uh, imperial stewards of land should not be the only landowners. Ordinary peasants should have some share of the land. So a massive, uh, there, there's a set of ideas circulating about what I call the redistribution of land. Contemporaries would have called it agrarian reform or land reform. Um, those terms have have accrued a lot of different meanings. So I avoid them because they're neoliberal kinds of land reform today, which look very different than this land reform a la 1945. Um, So let's just call it land redistribution. The post-colonial nations are saying, we are going to, once we get our freedom, we're going to redistribute land. And this has already happened twice in 1945. It's happened after 1881 in Ireland uh, with a series of acts which were passed as a result of gunpowder plots by Great Britain to redistribute the land of Ireland from absentee English landlords to ordinary Irish peasants. So it's happened in Ireland, totally happened in Ireland. Legislation was passed for Bengal and Scotland, but never really backed up. And then it's happened in Mexico during the Mexican Revolution, with the legislation that creates the ejidos, systems of communally owned land that return land rights to. They validate indigenous land rights. They return land rights from the hacienda to ordinary Mexican farmers, to peasants. So so this has happened twice in Mexico, in Ireland. It's about to happen in India, so far as anyone can tell, in 1945. And so when the foul arrives on the stage, the United, the foul, this arm of the United Nations, this first arm of the United Nations, says, uh, we are here to support developing world agriculture. And that means we're here to support the member nations who say that they are going to redistribute land. We are going to do whatever they ask us to, to help them redistribute land, even though we at the United Nations do not have the authority to 
to tell Europe what to do or tell Canada what to do or tell North America and the United States what to do. We see this model of land redistribution. We think it's okay. We're going to develop infrastructure to support it. And so part of the book is about those systems of infrastructure. How do you build an institution that's going to support those post-national movements? And I say this is a really interesting thing for the information age because essentially what they build, they don't have modern supercomputers, but they build a lot of what we would call infrastructure, maybe information infrastructure. They start compiling as much information they can about the soil of all of these nations. And this is super useful, expensive information, because if you know where, where the soil is rocky and where the soil is loamy, then I can do a really equitable land redistribution, one that makes sense for ordinary people. I'm not going to give Chuck a plot of rocks and give Will a plot of really fertile land, and both of them are an acre, and I'm going to call it fine. I'm going to say Chuck is farming rocks today, so we're going to give him a lot of acres. Will is for farming loam, he's fine with one acre, and uh, maybe we'll build some irrigation to help Chuck farm the rocky soil of his plot of land. So one of the things that the United Nations is doing is it's providing soil maps, it's providing bibliographies of scientific research, it's providing experts, and not experts from the United States or in Europe going to the rest of the world and telling them how to farm like us. They're providing experts where they send somebody from India to Egypt and somebody from Egypt to India to have a South-South exchange. And that's something that the, the FAO does to this day and does really well. They took seriously in 1945 the possibility of a South-South type of information system where experts from the developing world support other farmers in the developing world. And that's really revolutionary. I think we, we shouldn't, you know, it, there are a lot of things that are wrong with empire. There were a lot of things that were weird about the early United Nations, but this is, we shouldn't go so fast over this period of history that we miss the radical elements that were baked into the United Nations at its founding. So whether it was Ireland or Mexico or India or post-war uh, nations that were being decolonized, what are the conditions that led to this re-examination of colonialism? I mean, do we have to wait for another global uprising of fascism ending with the use of nuclear weapons of mass destruction in order to raise awareness of what we can all do to make everyone's life better? better? Will we come together again in the wake of another crisis. Do you think that there can be this kind of re-examination of the way in which the world is structured today due to the crisis either of the pandemic that we are still going through or the ongoing crisis of climate change? That's a, that's a really well-framed question, Chuck, because it's at the heart of this story and why this story might be relevant to us today. Uh, there are a lot of historians over the last half century, I'm one of them, who have been writing about the history of subaltern movements, by which we mean movements of oppressed people by gender or sexuality or race. Um, and, and those those liberation stories, those self-liberation stories are so powerful to movements and they deserve to be told. But when we think about how you transform the world and world systems, world economic systems. It's also very important to watch the institutions and which institutions respond to movements from below, which institutions co-opt movements from below. And they say, yes, we're on your side and they 
they they they show up and they wave banners but they don't give any power they don't give them anything that helps they don't give them any money um so all of those issues were on my mind as i was writing and what i arrived at was a little surprising i i thought that i was going to be telling a story about the co-optation of social movements by these international elite organizations but what i what i arrived at was a much more complicated story about some elites, some elites of the United Nations being very interested and very good listeners and allies to social movements around the world. So one example is Norris Dodd. Norris Dodd is the second director general of the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations. Um, Dodd is an American and he comes to the FAO from uh, the the Tennessee Valley Authority, where he's been involved with the New Deal and cooperative land management strategies and price controls. Um, Dodd decided as soon as he was appointed at the FAO, he wanted to go on a world tour and he wanted to actually meet leaders in the developing world and listen. It was a listening tour. So he spent um, about a year actually on the road uh, stopping and talking to world leaders. And when he was in India, he spent a lot of time talking to the followers of Gandhi about strategies to support small farmers. And one of the things that he heard there was that Gandhi was responsible for a lot of thinking about technology and the, how technology represents systems of economic power. So the followers of Gandhi had thought a lot about the railroads in India. Railroads in India um, one of the were at the end at, in 1945. They were still one of the. They are still today one of the largest rail systems in the United in in world history. Even Marx thought that it was inevitable with all of those railroads that India would industrialize and become one of the richest nations on the face of the earth by the end of the 19th century. And Marx was wrong about that. Um, so the followers of Gandhi had raised this question, how is it that India can have so many railroads and still hasn't industrialized or became wealthy? And the answer, the answer was figured out by a historian named Manu Goswami, who's at NYU. Goswami says, the reason is that the railroads are essentially corrupt. There are two systems of prices. You charge one set of rates for bringing freight into India to industrialize by like bringing in iron machines. You charge a different set of rates for exporting raw materials from India, like taking the cotton out of India so that it can be finished in Manchester. The railroads are in the control of moneyed interests. And as a result, they are instruments of confiscation. So it's not just the infrastructure, it's how the infrastructure is run and all of the rules around the infrastructure. Technology doesn't necessarily create a rising tide that floats all boats. It depends on how who owns the infrastructure and how it's structured. So the followers of Gandhi said, we're going to reconsider large-scale investments in technology in this very poor country where famine is now endemic thanks to British empire. We think that it would be very useful 
for getting India off the ground if we invest in small-scale technology. And they're looking at things like the thousands of tiny bicycle shops, which are all over India and South Asia in 1945. There are bicycle shops everywhere, and they're owned by Indians. And those Indians make a little bit of money. And the people who own bicycles, they can, they've got a little bit of freedom to get around town and do their own business. So bicycles are an example of of small-scale technology, helping small farmers, small peasants, ordinary people to work better. So the director general of the FAO, Norris Dodd, says, this, this tells me what we need to do about our technology strategy at the FAO. We don't need to just ship plow, modern Chicago-style plows to India in order to modernize the nation. We need to send hoes and buckets to India and to China. If we can empower a handful of small farmers, then they will create their own hoe and bucket factories. And then we'll create a kind of grassroots uplift in the countryside. So this is the backstory to the small is beautiful movement and to E.F. Schumacher and those ideas which were later reabsorbed in North America. Some of your listeners may have heard of small is beautiful. But the, the crucial part of my history is that small is beautiful is an Indian idea. It's a poor people's idea. It's an idea about how to create an economy where everyone can participate. Everybody can, everybody can benefit from a rising tide of capitalism. And it's, it has to do with ownership of the technology. It's not about sending one laptop to every child in Africa. It's about giving small tools small tools to people who can thereby become tiny entrepreneurs and build their own interests. You write that a broad consensus in North America and Europe held that land redistribution was inevitable. The only question was whether the program executed would be capital, capitalist or communist in nature. Why was there a belief that land redistribution was inevitable? Was land redistribution understood as a necessity if the world was going to be decolonized? Was it understood as necessary land redistribution, was that understood as necessary to end imperialism and the notion of empire? Yeah, so for, in, in 1945, in most of the world, in most of Europe, in most of the places colonized by Europe, there's a set of beliefs about how to roll back empire where land ownership is central. And uh, if we want to understand why that's so universal, it's a very interesting story, which is a little beyond what I tell in the book. But let's just say it goes back to the 1880s and the writings of American journalist Henry George. Henry George is probably the first author who creates a truly international critique of land ownership, where he draws parallels between San Francisco in the era of the telegraph and uh, India in the era of the railroads and colonial Ireland. And he says, look, in all of these places, moneyed interests of empire moved in and the price of land starts to rise and the price of rent starts to rise. And then it's impossible for ordinary people to to live. They have to move. There's massive displacement. There's massive turnover. And there was in all of these placements, uh, in all of these places. And he says, you can imagine a system of capitalism where everything can be bought and sold, except for the land, 
We're never going to make more land, so land could have special rules put around it. This is the origin of thinking about rent control. Rent control is one instance of Georgist ideas applied to land. Uh, there are also systems, different systems of property taxes, progressive systems of property taxes, where we're not going to tax you so much for your ranch house on the outskirts of Chicago, but we're going to tax you a lot for your penthouse in the middle of downtown. So there are different Georgist ideas, but George creates this set of ideas where he says, look, colonized people and poor people on the outskirts of a city are in the same position. They could be displaced from where they live very quickly just because of how capital moves. And we need to take the land question very seriously. So the land question has been debated since the 19th century. By the time we get to the end of the Second World War, there are you know, essentially land back type movements, movements for land redistribution on every continent on the face of the earth. Sometimes they look like renters movements of poor white working folk who are trying to make the city livable. Sometimes they look like nationalist movements against empire to put racial movements to return, return India uh, to people from India, return the land. But the return of the land is an absolutely central point of all of these post-colonial movements. And that's something that's disappeared in some of the history that we've been telling recent, recently about the post-colonial movements, because we've, we've there, there's so many to, stories to tell about empire and post-coloniality. You could tell it as a story about race. You could tell it as a story about human dignity. But land ownership, is also key to a vision of, you know, we're going to have a Zimbabwe that doesn't, that where the land doesn't belong to a few rich people who happen to have English descent. That's absolutely crucial to most of these post-colonial movements. And that's why in 1945, land reform looks inevitable to a lot of people. It looks inevitable to people at the United Nations. It looks inevitable to people from Washington. It looks inevitable to people in Westminster. And there's a kind of general consensus that th this, this is going to happen with or without us. It can happen in a peaceful way, in a rationalized way in which there are like their maps and their economic systems, or this can happen in the way in which it's been happening in, in Russia and China, in which there's a lot of violence and then a lot of land turnover. And that's a, that's a much longer story that's, um, that's uh, two chapters of my book about how that happens in China and Russia and what the reaction is. But uh, land, land redistribution, the slogan, the earth for man, it stands in for the idea that we can, we can promote the best and the most enlivening aspects of ideas about land redistribution while these enormous parts of the world are in transition. And indeed, we should, because it's crucial to the spread of democracy, to imagine a world in which not just the state is participatory, but also the market is participatory. Anybody can join, anybody can try. You're not going to be displaced. You're not going to lose everything. Everybody has a place where they can live. They're not going to fear displacement at the drop of a hat if they fail in, co in capitalism. This is an... In in one way, it's an existential answer to some of the riddles of a capitalist society that's distinct from capital, from communism, at least in communism as it was realized under Stalin and Mao. 
We are speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, who wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. This essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at her website, joegoldie.com, and follow Joe on Twitter at Joe Goldie. I want to ask you a couple of questions about John Boyd Orr, who's another veteran of the British crusade against hunger that you write about, uh, who also was somebody who was one of the founding people or one of the earliest uh, leaders of the FAO. You write that Orr's agenda was threefold, establishing the FAO as an independent policymaking institution capable of recommending global strategies, combating the worst consequences of poverty by supporting a worldwide food program, a world food plan, and challenging the long-term consequences of racism in Europe's former colonies. How could or how can a world food plan challenge European racism in its former colonies? Or for that matter, how could a world food plan today challenge racism anywhere? I, you know, that's an it's an excellent question. John Boyd Orr is a he's a visionary who's come out of Depression era politics in Britain. He win, wins the Nobel Prize in part for his work on food politics in Britain for essentially arguing that there should be a right to food, a universal right to food that a civilized country can afford to feed all people. This is the root of the kinds of uh, food government food programs that we have in the United States and in Canada today, think programs that provide school lunches um, uh, to, to school children. Um, so Bo- Boyd Orr is bound up with all of those questions. But as he's Part of the, becomes part of the conversation about the FAO and a world program for dealing with food. Um, the FAO the FAO enters a space where all people were talking about was markets, markets and trade and coordinating prices to make more efficient markets. And Boyd Orr. This is before the Second World War. There's a kind of fantasy that if we just have an institution in Rome and it coordinates world commodities markets, then that will automatically end hunger. By 1945, it's becoming apparent to many people that that's that's not it, the world doesn't work as simply as that. And Boyd Orr is the visionary who makes that argument to the United Nations. Uh, to leader, he personally has conversations with leaders like Roosevelt and set, makes the case for a coordinating institution. This is an era that's very optimistic about the powers of institutions, about designing an institution correctly, so that the so that everyone has a say. This is maybe something that has been lost in our era of. Uh, skepticism towards institutions and power of all kinds. So Boyd Orr is interested in power and institutions and shaping that correctly. And he writes this kind of manifesto of how he, what he thinks should be done. And the manifesto has a triggering title, so prepare yourself. It's called The White Man's Dilemma. The White Man's Dilemma earns Boyd Orr the Nobel Prize. And it's actually a very radical text because in this book, Wood Orr says, the white man's dilemma is that he owns all of the land and he doesn't want to give it up. But if he doesn't give it up, we're going to be facing a never ending cycle of violence. We can either make the choices now and give up most of Europe's colonial holdings and 
in, in Latin America and Africa and Asia, or never ending cycles of violence will occur because people will be hungry and hungry people lead to political instability and that will harm us in other ways. So white man's dilemma is putting forward as clearly as possible. What are the stakes? You know, the stakes of this battle between communism and capitalism are are bigger than just two sets of ideas. We have to be able to imagine a world in which people have a right to food and a right to a place to live. You know, later on, people will start to talk about that as human rights. But at this period, I think what's, it's really essential that you know, most of the other human rights, like the right to an education or women's rights, they depend on being able to first you need to have some food and you need to have a place to live. And there's something to be said for concentrating just on those two rights. Um, so, you know, we still live in a world in which many people, even in the United States, even in Canada, go hungry. Um, we still live in a world in which small farmers in the developing world cannot count on food security. Uh, beginning 10, 20 years ago, we were hearing about farmer suicides uh, south of the border of the United States, farmer suicides of farmers who had made what was considered to be the right investment for the time. And they were killing themselves because they literally could not make a living. They literally could not feed their families. Um, so these issues are still very live. They're still causing mass displacement. They're still the subject of uh, grassroots agitation all across the global South. Um, some of the authors who write about this very intelligently include my friend Raj Patel, so I would follow up with him uh, for a conversation about the food politics of today. You also quote or writing in White Man's Dilemma, the natives of Asia, Africa, and Latin America would become the equals of the white man. And as these continents become industrialized, the Europeans and their descendants, the Americans would lose the control of the world they gained in their 300 years of conquest from the 17th to the 19th century. This then is the white man's dilemma. He can attempt by force to maintain military and economic supremacy, the final outcome of which will be the downfall of Western civilization. Or, on the other hand, he can join the human family and use his present industrial supremacy to develop the resources of the earth to put an end to hunger and poverty with resulting worldwide economic prosperity. This is really important to remember. Again, this is back in the 1950s. So, Joe, is Western civilization today in threat of collapse because Western empires are using force to maintain military and economic supremacy that they obtained through colonialism and imperialism? Is it a desperate attempt to save Western domination, leading to its own civilizational collapse. Oh, Chuck, it's, it's great to hear you read aloud those those words from John Boyd Orr, uh, because you know essentially Boyd Orr is being very crafty here. He's saying to Roosevelt, to um, to the leaders of the UK, the leaders of Europe, and the leaders of the post-colonial world, look, there's a gun to our head. Do we want to live through never-ending cycles of violence so that we can increase our capital flow by a little bit? Uh, you know, I I hear those words and I immediately think about climate change. I think the scientists have already said there is a gun to our head. We can continue to pursue revenue on the stand on the model that we pursued it already, or 
we need to adapt. What we haven't seen is the kind of leadership that John Boyd Orr showed after 1945 um, with explaining to world leaders and explaining to journalists again and again the importance of this moment of time and the real possibility of creating a world institution. It's not just marches. It's not just grassroots movements. It comes out of that. But the response, the, where those marches go, is the devolution of power. It's power to the people via institutions that can support actual transfer of land and farmers growing their own food successfully. That requires some science. It requires some information. It requires some South-South exchanges. But it requires some coordinating power. So John Boyd Orr was the kind of visionary who could move from a gun to our, is to our head. We must change something about the system of capitalism to here is the blueprint for the kind of global institution which could enable economic participation for everyone and political participation. And it will stop the possibility of never ending cycles of violence by defeating their root cause by defeating poverty and hunger and displacement. So, you know, I, I feel I feel a little agitated um, when I when I read contemporary journalism, um, which presses the panic response, a gun to us to our head in terms of climate change. It most certainly is. Um, and there's all of this inaction, but then doesn't hold up the candle in the room doesn't turn on the light to help us imagine what kind of an institution would get us out. Because in the absence of designing a new institution, all we have is the stock exchange, the World Bank. And they are not creative institutions. They are not institutions that are about the, devo the devolution of power. So if you'd like to read more about that, I have written um, a, an article in, in the journal Climactic Change in which I tried to imagine what a world government of land would look like today, which took indigenous, indigenous rights seriously and the labor of indigenous activism seriously uh, in order to protect all of us from pollution and displacement, uh, to protect the people of the world from hunger and warfare. Um, it's my my own attempt. There are other people, uh, of course, in the climate movement who are trying to imagine this kind of institution. But I think it it is so vital right now that we embrace the utopianism that was present in the 1940s and 1950s with this kind of initiative and use it as a way to guide us in this moment when we have a lot of grassroots voices saying we're in trouble. There is a gun to our head. And yet we seem to be in a moment of paralysis, institutional paralysis, where little seems to shift. Does land distribution, redistribution, Joe, does that mean the end of private property as we understand it today? Because back in May, uh, we had climate justice activists. I mentioned this earlier, climate justice activist, post-colonial scholar, writer Ashley Dawson uh, back on the show to talk about his new book that he co-edited, co Decolonize uh, Conservation. In that book, he cites Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, whose essay, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor, arguing that decolonization eliminates settler property rights and settler sovereignty. It requires the abolition of land as property and upholds the sovereignty of native land and people. So do we need to give up land as property, land as commodity, land as privately held to bring about equality and fairness, as well as a physical and political environment best suited for direct democracy? 
Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's... <laughs> They're, they're, it's so exciting to hear people talking about this because 10 years ago, nobody was talking about land back. Nobody was talking about um, what the consequences of climate change might be for housing and for indigenous property rights and for First Nations. Um, and, and and then we we lived through Standing Rock and uh, we li- we're living through these, these beautiful flourishing grassroots movements. And I, I take a lot of delight in, in seeing them. I... I wanted to do the service in the long land war of just just patiently stepping through what that might mean with the guide of history. Technically, what might that mean? I'm on board with post-colonial movements saying empire stole a lot of land and we've got to give it back. That's been going on for 100 years. That is right. We're talking about it. We're talking about it in relationship to slavery in North America. And that's a huge deal. Uh, one of the things that you that I, I started to understand as I was writing the story is that um, North America is actually probably the continent that's furthest behind in these conversations. The United States likes to think of itself as a thought leader and a political leader uh, in terms of justice for the the entire world. But for the period from 1945, the United States is not running the conversation. It's not at the forefront of these conversations about post-colonialism and land redistribution. And there are actually periods of time, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, when the United States is a regressive force stopping land redistribution m- movements, silencing activists, including native activists in the United States, activists of color like African-Americans and Latinos in New Mexico. I tell some of those stories in in the long land war. The United States is one of the places where the long land war is essentially lost during the 60s and the 70s. It's going way better in place and other in Latin further to the south in Latin America. And that's one of the reasons that the native activists who were at Alcatraz uh, Island in San Francisco Bay in 19, is it 1973, why they, why they are inspired to make those claims about indigenous land rights um, is because they're inspired by what's happening in contemporary Peru, where indigenous Quechua movements are stomping into the courtroom to demand land or death, tierra o muerte. Um, So we start to see that there's this really powerful global nexus of grassroots movements. So does does land redistribution, let me come back to your question because it's a great question. Does land redistribution mean that we're not going to have private property rights? Uh, Not the land redistribution methods that I talk about in the long land war. So in the book, I go through all of these movements and the ones that are affiliated with the United Nations and then all of these grassroots movements that come come to light in places like Peru and India uh, and indigenous movements in Alcatraz and the Beaver and Cree people in Canada. Um, So I'm naming a lot of different movements that take different shape through the the course of telling this story. What most of them want um, is, is a series of concessions that acknowledge the reality of multiple legal systems on the same place. That's a very complex thing to do for a court to deal with from the get-go, multiple legal systems in the same place. So you think about the Beaver and Cree people of Canada, 
Um, their ancestors have lived uh, on this land for hundreds of years. And they have no written documentation of that. What, what they have is a language that's filled with place names. And the place names embody stories. They embody a notion of occupancy, which is to say they live in one place. So that's a kind of property right, but it's a, not an exclusive property right. It means you, maybe you can share part of this property with me. We started to understand these overlapping property rights in the 1960s and the 1970s for the first time, really. And then, then in the 1980s and 1990s, as anthropologists started Anthropologists and geographers from the university started to hang out with these native movements who were making their claims in court. And the anthropologists, the historians, the geographers, the journalists who went there, they started to ask, well, what does this mean? What does it mean to have a non-overlapping property right? And as we started to ask that question, we started to realize that these non-overlapping property rights were everywhere. They were in, they were in Africa, they were in Latin America, they're not just one native tribe uh, in in the middle of Canada, they're, they're all over Asia. And in fact, they existed in Ireland, they existed in Switzerland, they existed in many parts of Europe. It's very common to have something called communal property or a commons. So that, that word is a lot more familiar to listeners now than it would have been 50 years ago. Uh, and that's in part due to the work of uh, political scientist Eleanor Ostrom, the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics. Ostrom's research compiled case after case after case of commonly owned land and the rules that Native people put into place. Before Ostrom, it had been commonplace to dismiss any kind of Native land ownership or collective land ownership as automatically destined for fa failure. So the writings of Garrett Hardin, um, a Dallas-based uh, animal management specialist, suggest, coined the phrase tragedy of the commons. And Hardin argued that it was unnatural to have a system where many people over use the same piece of land or own the same piece of land in common. Because what would happen would be, I would graze my cow, you would graze your cow, and then more cows would come, and eventually the cows would eat all of the grass, the cows would die, and then we would die. Hardin says, a tragedy of the commons. So what happens is Eleanor Ostrom comes along and she says, huh, I don't know if that's right. And she starts collecting all of these cases. And there are all of these other anthropologists and geographers who have started going to, to native elders and saying, well, we don't know. We don't know what this is really like. Could you tell us about what you're trying to document for the courts in Canada to prove in Canada to prove that you own this piece of property? And they write down all of these examples and they compare them. And ultimately, Eleanor Ostrom writes the book that earns her a Nobel Prize, in which she says, common pool systems exist the world over, and they are very intelligent, and they don't produce a tragedy of the commons where we all starve to death, because there are rules, because people can talk to each other, and they can make a rule, like we can have no more than 12 cows on this piece of land. They make that rule when they're fishing, they make that rule when they're cutting down trees in the forest. We can have common systems. So it's only in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s 
the American academia starts getting smarter, the Western court systems start getting smarter, smart enough, smart enough to realize that you can have something called indigenous title, where there's a certain set of rules for owning a piece of property or acknowledging that indigenous people have certain rights to talk about this piece of land, um, where there's this, we can talk about owning the forest in a way that many people can use it. We can talk about fishery systems in the Atlantic and the Pacific, where many people are allowed to fish, but there are rules. As we start to get smarter, we start to imagine something that is not, it's not 19th century capitalism, the way, the way uh, Ricardo, David Ricardo imagined it, where there's one piece of land and one person standing on it. This isn't Lockean capitalism. It's not white imperial capitalism. I own this piece of land, you have to leave. It might still be capitalism. It's not that all of the land is owned by the state, but now there are multiple pieces of property overlapping. And we can imagine systems of ownership where I'm allowed to own this house, but there's a right to homeownership in our nation. And that means that the state has the right to buy my front yard because I'm not doing anything with it. And maybe they're going to plant an ADU there. So there's going to be more housing for the families that can't afford housing in a housing crisis. So I'm extrapolating now from the history. A right to housing, an occupancy right, gives the state permission to say certain things about how you build your house. The state says certain things already. You've got to have a sewer. You've got to have bathrooms. Uh, you can't have an overcrowded dwelling. Well, we can think about systems of capitalism where there are also rules about how property is owned and managed. And we can think about that with regards to right, a right to housing, with regards to indigenous rights, with regards to pollution, to the air and the water as commons that we all have to protect. I think that there's a lot to draw on. Um, so I think I would agree with uh, your authors, with Eve Tuck and Wayne Yang, Wayne Yang um, when they argue that decolonization means taking seriously the history of property rights. And I would just say that it's really useful to know about the details of these struggles over the last half century, because there's so many useful stories to tell us about what a, what a constructive participatory conversation might look like in which indigenous rights and climate survival and occupancy rights, the right to housing, where all of that is on the table, all of that is being managed appropriately, actively, not just a pipe dream, but it becomes part of how cities, states, and nations, and the world manage our right to land. We have been speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, who wrote the Boston Review essay, The Earth for Man, Redistributing Land Was Once Central to Global Development Efforts, and It Should Be Today. This essay is adapted from her most recent book, The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights, which came out in 2022. You can find out more about Joe at joegoldie.com, and you can follow Joe on Twitter at joegoldie. That's J-O-G-U-L-D-I. One last question for you, Joe. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. In your writing, you 
describe colonialism as not only exploiting peoples, but uh, mercilessly extracting resources, exporting food in times of famine. It not only it spreads exploitation, misery, inequality, and environmental destruction, but famine and spreads all those th- things globally. That's what happened during the age of colonialism and in many cases still continues today. So what message was the West sending to the colonized peoples about liberty, freedom, and democracy if they were simultaneously spreading destruction, misery, exploitation, so their citizens grew fat on exported food while locals starved? Is the reason they hate us over 500 years of colonialism? It's, you know, it's a heartbreaking story. Um, I've been teaching the history of uh, Britain's colonization of India at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, uh, for the last the last five years. Um, and I've been telling my my students about this these stories about famine. Famine is not endemic to India, and then famine becomes endemic to India, and then millions upon millions of uh, individuals die in the process. And and the response from the British state is largely, with certain ex- exceptions, just heartbreaking. Let's create concentration camps. Let's create a, an archipelago of barbed wire camps. Um, and uh, we'll shove all of the indigenous people there. We'll shove in there anybody who asks for help because they're starving. And there are pictures from the Bengal famine of the late 19th century that showed these emaciated victims that looked like they've just escaped from a concentration camp. And this this story about famine as a result of land theft is repeated again and again uh, as you look over the history of colonialization in North America, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. Uh, The India case is just the one that I've been telling my students about. Now, Southern Methodist University is in my hometown, Dallas, Texas, which is where I'm talking to you from. Um, And the student base of uh, SMU is, it's diverse, but politically it tends to be, it tends to veer right. Um, This is a university which is well known for its business school, uh, which appears in the book to serve God and Walmart as the embodiment of the Walmart mentality of let's downsize um, strip what workers of all protections and uh, and create a strong managerial class to make sure that workers have as few rights as possible. So I have a lot of students who have they've been reading about the free market. They've been promised that downsizing will make everybody rich. It's the it's what God wants. In some versions, they often haven't heard indigenous perspectives. They probably often they usually aren't as aware of grassroots perspectives as students who I've taught on the West Coast or the East Coast or or in Chicago. Um, So these these students uh, are new to the conversation about colonialism. If they studied the period of colonialism in school, it was likely that they heard about it, um, a very sanitized version of it, uh, which was about the spread of Christianity by missionaries, um, the spread of democracy, the spread of liberalism. Uh, so we we unpacked that one item at a time. We move through each of those items. We talk about uh, the censorship of the press, uh, the stifling of the newspaper, 
in India. The same thing was happening in contemporary Ireland. We talk about um, the stifling of of democracy, local rule. Uh, so we talk about um, how long it took for Indians to get the vote and how little Indians were part of the civil service. We talk about the, the entire debate over that. Um, and we talk about these famines and the famines are really, you know, seeing the pictures of the emaciated bodies of the dead are really where most, the, the heart of most of my students started to get awakened and they were able to step back from whatever, whatever simple, simpler stories they had absorbed in their childhood and say, oh gosh, we're talking about, we're talking about real lives here. We're talking about real lives here. And it is very important to know the fact of history. We're not just talking about ideas. Ideas are part of it. We're talking about decades of actual facts about systems that murder people and systems that allow for relatively more human flourishing. So I emphasize to my students and I would emphasize to listeners, this is, this is the value of knowing your history. It is, history is a repository of facts. Historians want to know what the facts are and where they came from. They scrutinize every piece of information, every source for those facts. They don't take another, uh, they don't take the word of rumor or the word of a colleague for granted. They inspect every piece of paper. They turn over every stone in order to give you an account of what really happened and who suffered. And it often requires, the reading of history, the writing of history, often requires changing your mind about what the best institutions are for today and what we need to do. Joe, it has been an immense pleasure having you on today's show. We have been speaking with data scientist, writer, and historian Joe Goldie, author of the book Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. Follow her on Twitter at Joe Goldie. Check out uh, her website at joegoldie.com. Thank you so much for being on our show. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I truly appreciate it. It's a, it's a real pleasure, Chuck. Thank you so much. I'm wishing you all the best. All right. Take care. Thank you, Joe. Bye. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. If you enjoyed our conversation with Joe on land redistribution, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast, which happens every week on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. And if I say support one more time, punch me in the face. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any more answers from our amazing listeners? We sure do. Sweet! Um, this week's question from hell is, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep him company in hell? Let's see, we have a few, uh, I think we have a new one on Patreon. We outed uh, Bernie Sanders as a war criminal this sure week. Sure did. That's nice. Breaking news. <laughs> Let's see, so a uh, couple responses on Patreon in the past couple of days. Uh, Neil C. replies, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and uh, Dean T. Uh, another vote for Dick Cheney. Yeah, he's getting a lot. And the moronic war horse he rode in on. <laughs> All right. That is W. All right. 
over on Twitter, nothing, because we're shadow banned. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot. Um, let's check Discord. Anything new? Oh, another one from Kim G on Discord from yesterday. Okay, so if I had to pick, it would be W. Bush, and he would be in the same hell room with Kissinger, who had to listen to him endlessly blathering on about his paintings. <laughs> <laughs> That's a conversation I do uh, not want to have with George W. Bush. God, him painting wounded veterans. <laughs> Any more? Uh, let's see. Yeah, over on the Facebooks. Uh, welcome to the hellhole. We have from Adam A. Dick effing Cheney, ideally violently. <laughs> <laughs> That's harsh. Uh-huh. Um, uh, from Kafka S., I'm thinking some sort of King Ralph event at Davos would be balm for our souls. And Jeffrey Dorchen says Steve Urkel. He knows what he did. <laughs> that is uh, too bad he works on the show because that it might be my favorite of the yeah. week. That's really good. Um, and I think that's all she wrote. All right, so uh, we are going to be announcing our favorite answer to this week's question from hell following Seb Vooper and the past inside the present. Will, again, what's Seb up to during this week's uh, past inside the present? Seb returns once again to the Holy Land and the history of how Israel came to be. This week is mandatory. Mandatory Palestine, that is. And the Balfour Declaration keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is Hell, and this week on Patreon, it's part two of everything we learned over the past four months here on This Is Hell. We were going to just have one uh, review of the last four months, but we learned so much in, the, in August and September alone that we had to break it up into two parts. And I've been writing the episode, or the monologue, for October and November review, and we might have to split this into two parts because we learned that hell of a lot in October as well. Also on Patreon, we are playing an interview we selected way back in 2009 as one of the best of the year. A conversation from July 18th of that year with Jeff Foe, founder and former president of the Economic Policy Institute. Jeff was on to talk about his just posted article at The Nation entitled, So Far From God, so close to Wall Street, Mexico's troubles illustrate the destructive effects of NAFTA's neoliberal economics. Jeff is the author of The Glo Global Class War, How America's Bipartisan Elite Lost Our Future and What It Will Take to Win It Back. But the only way you can hear me recap what we learned over the last couple of months here on This Is Hell and one of our best interviews of 2009 is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and tuning into tomorrow's Patreon podcast. Coming up, Seb, Seb, Seb with the past inside the present, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's show. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Take it away, Seb. The past inside the present. So here's a weird thought. Um, how many, like, in, in terms of uh, d uh, distribution, what religion do you think are most Zionists? And if you say Jewish, 
that's probably not true because just by the numbers, and this is just the thing I came across this week and I've just found it fascinating. It is not in my script, so I'm going off script here. Uh, just one of these things I learned where I'm like, what? Uh, so worldwide, currently, there are numbers are kind of hard, but like there's somewhere between 12, 18 million Jewish people. Um, not all of these people are Zionists. And if you look at how many evangelical christians there are who ostensibly all like a lot of them are zionists uh there's a lot more of them and so chances are that there are actually quite a lot more christian zionists than there are jewish zionists which is just a weird thought anyway uh last week i talked about uh the life and importance of austro-hungarian journalist and activist theodor herzl the person credited with the creation of political zionism and largely regarded as the father of israel today i want to seamlessly continue to look at how Zionism as a movement developed after his somewhat untimely death in 1904. To reiterate, during the first Zionist World Congress, uh, the World Zionist Organization declared four main objectives. First, the promotion by appropriate means of the settlement in Palestine of Jewish farmers, artisans, and manufacturers. Appropriate means here should be understood as a break with the previous practice of the proto-Zionist activists who snuck into Palestine and established themselves without permission or knowledge of uh, the local Ottoman authorities. Uh, the Zionist Congress wished to have the creation of a Jewish Palestine to be entirely above board and adhering to the law. Um, but also note the focus on farmers and producers over you know, other kind of people. Uh, second objective, the organization and uniting of the whole of Jewry by means of appropriate institutions, both local and international, in accordance with the laws of each country. Again, the stressing of everything going in adherence with the law. I mean, this is under, quite understandable because, you know, you, as the Jewish, as, as representation of the Jewish people at large, you don't want to, you know, give fodder to further anti-Semitism by just, uh, just kind of wild cat like create your own country um and again the stressing uh, uh, of, of everything here is just it's just just important to keep that in mind uh but here we should also keep in mind who herzl and his followers uh had considered worthy jews uh which included uh, which excluded many that he and his uh his you know inner circle deemed backwards if not outright racially impure which is also kind of important to uh, keep in mind here uh, third objective, the strengthening and fostering of Jewish national sentiment and national consciousness. And in some ways, this is where Zionism runs into the problem of being a self-fulfilling prophecy of an ancient anti-Jewish stereotype. Jews have since time immemorial been accused of harboring quote-unquote dual loyalty, or rather that they are more loyal towards Judaism as a whole than they are towards whatever country they live in or towards the people that they that are their neighbors, basically. Um, and so consciously developing a Jewish nationalism would, of course, eventually turn this stereotype on its head because a Zionist Jew living in Europe would indeed proudly and openly have loyalty towards the Jewish cause, possibly over their nationalism towards whatever country they lived in. 
Uh, objective number four was uh, preparatory steps taken towards uh, the consent of governments where necessary in order to reach the goals of Zionism. And this, again, had a lot to do with uh, the Zionists wishing to create this, their state in accordance with the law. Um, and also just, uh, uh, it's, 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 again, truly astonishing how, uh, how well connected Herzl and his people became in terms of just diplomatic connections. Anyway, after Herzl's death, the Zionist leadership was then taken up in 1907 by a guy called David Wolfson, uh, a Lithuanian Jew who lived in Germany. The seat of the Zionist organization then moved to Berlin. At the time, the Ottoman Empire was undergoing some internal changes with the Young Turk Revolution, and uh, the Zionists failed to make inroads with these new Ottoman leaders. Uh, so not a lot, not a whole lot happened in regards to fulfillment of the Zionist objectives during Wolfson's uh, tenure as leader. At the same time, Russian Jews suffered a renewed wave of pogroms, uh, partially inspired by the 1903 publication of the seminal anti-Semitic text, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which supposedly documented the existence of a Jewish world conspiracy that was secretly running everything. Um, yeah, so if anybody, if you come across anybody who tries to convince you of uh, the existence of a Jewish world conspiracy or anybody who cites the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in earnest uh, run or punch or both uh, i will have to talk about uh, this this tract in a separate segment at some point as uh, as well as about the history of you know actual anti-semitism and i'm also i'm sorry by the way that the past inside the present has kind of turned into a history of israel 101 uh, there simply is a lot here that needs to be talked about and it's something i find fascinating and it's a timely topic um and also it uh, uh, saves me from uh, not knowing what to talk about. Uh, anyway, pogroms in Russia caused another massive wave of emigration to Palestine, a second aliyah. Uh, roughly 35,000 Jewish people emigrated to Ottoman Palestine between 1904 and 1914. Uh, and during this time, in 1909, then a group of Zionists under the leadership of a guy called Akiva Arya Weiss, formed the Ahusat Bayit, or Homestead Society. Uh, Weiss was a Belarusian watchmaker who had come to Palestine in 1906. He envisioned the foundation of an all-Hebrew city in the Jewish homeland. And to pursue this project, he uh, got help from a guy called Jacobus Kahn, a Dutch banker who purchased 60 plots of land from Arab landowners near the port city of Jaffa in 1909. Uh, and there they then proceeded to found a completely new city named after Herzl's novel Alt Neuland, or New Old Land, in which Herzl described a utopian Israel. And translated to Hebrew, the title of this book is Tel Aviv. So, yeah, that you can guess what the town was called. Yeah, that's what the town was called. Uh, the town grew rapidly, replicating in Palestine many of the amnities European Jews were used to. Um, in the same year, the first kibbutz was also founded near the Sea of Galilee. Remember how I said the Zionism is itself not necessarily a monolith? Uh, the kibbutzim movement is a good example of that, as they represent socialist Zionism as opposed to cultural, political, or religious Zionism. And yes, it is kind of weird that political Zionism is one thing and socialist Zionism is not political Zionism, but that's that's how that 
you know, words uh, can be weird. Definitions like this can be weird. Also, more Jewish organizations began buying large tracts of land in the area at this time. Official Israeli historiography says that these Zionist settlers came into a land that had been long neglected by its implicitly unworthy Arab stewards for centuries, and that it took Jews to come in and turn malarial swamps and uh, deserts into fertile lands. In new Israeli historians like Ilan Pape and Avi Shleim uh, question, if not contradict these claims. Palestine, they say, had seen many modernizations actually in the 19th century and was in the early 20th century generally doing quite well in terms of agricultural production. And the Jewish newcomers actually barely registered if we're looking at the actual numbers. And then World War I happened. And this would predictably have many effects on the Zionist project. Uh, first of all, the Ottomans deported the Jewish population of Tel Aviv, for one. And uh, this again then served as proof to the Zionists that Jews could not exist safely in a world without having a nation state where they alone uh, could say what happened. Um, and I mean, there's something to it, you know. Um, during the war, the European powers of Britain and France entered into the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Uh, this pact carved the lands of the Ottoman Empire up into spheres of influence between the two powers. In 1916, British diplomat Mark Sykes and his French counterpart Georges Picot essentially drew lines on a map of the Ottoman Empire that they uh, were convinced would lose in the ongoing war. Well, because it was not going great for the Ottomans at the time. And uh, so this land then would become partition in the aftermath of the war. Uh, the Sykes-Picot Agreement came at a time when a combination of British and Arab forces wedged the Ottoman rulers out of the Levant. Uh, the British had promised their Arab rulers that they would respect Arab sovereignty over the region, uh, but in the back rooms, they still divided the country up without any Arab input. The region of Palestine would fall under international administration. The region became divided up into discrete nation states after the failure of Ottoman rule. On the Arab side, this resulted in the emergence of a distinctly Palestinian national identity. The region was culturally homogenous, and most Arab speakers there spoke the same dialect. And this is important if you don't know, uh, Arabic is actually kind of an, an interesting language insofar as that it has a lot of different dialects that are mutually not necessarily intelligible. Uh, so if you're an Arabic speaker from Morocco, you can't necessarily speak uh, to an Arabic speaker from Qatar, for example. Um, and so it's important that, you know, you have a region where all the people speak the same dialect and can't understand each other. Um, talk to Benedict Anderson about that, but that's a deep cut for another time. Uh, the new political borders then also aided the Zionist conception of where the borders of their Eretz Israel were supposed to be. A year later, the Zionist alliance with the ruling elites of uh, Great Britain bore another fruit that went beyond uh, the Anglo-French pact. British Foreign Secretary Lord Arthur Balfour ha uh, had a letter to the leader of the British Zionists, Lord Walter Rothschild, published. Uh, this became known as the Balfour Declaration. The letter contained a single 67-word sentence in which Balfour, well, declares the British government's favorable view of, quote, establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people, unquote. Balfour notably does not use the phrase Jewish state, but national home. Uh, a slew of different factors played into the issuing of the Balfour Declaration. The pogroms in Eastern Europe had resulted in a large number of Jews um, coming into Britain, among other places. And the British citizenry at large viewed this with worry fueled by their own anti-Semitism. 
So creating a Jewish homeland elsewhere became an enticing option for British politicians so that all of these Jews could be sent there. And meanwhile, this project would also have a, a secondary benefit uh, because the British would then be able to use uh, the British and other European Jews as a check against the Arab rulers in that part of the world. After the end of World War One, the Ottoman Empire was indeed defeated and broken up. And as had been laid out in the agreements made during the war, Palestine was now put under international administration. And this is what we talk about when we talk about mandatory Palestine, because it was governed by the League of Nations mandate for Palestine. The country was supposed to remain under mandate administration until it could essentially support itself. Uh, the leadership of mandatory Palestine came to civilian high commissioners who replaced the military mandate leadership in 1920. Uh, the Palestinian people, meanwhile, organized in uh, the Palestinian National Conference, which uh, met yearly starting in 1919. This was a political organization that represented collective Palestinian interests, both towards the British as well as towards the Zionists. Uh, while many Palestinian Arab organizations refused to compromise in accepting co-governments or cooperation with, with any Zionists, uh, the same was also true for the Zionists, who in turn refused to cooperate with the Palestinians. In 1928, the Palestinian National Conference was ready to concede and accept equal representation of Jewish settlers in the political institutions of the state that was supposed to emerge out of mandatory Palestine. The Zionists had, in fact, promoted this agreement. However, the Zionists' calculation had been that the Arabs would refuse to agree to it. And when this did not happen, the Zionist position shifted and the agreement was rejected. Mandatory Palestine saw several new waves of Jewish immigration, two new aliyahs between 1919 and 1928, fueled again by pogroms across the newly emerged Soviet Union and a rise of anti-Semitism in Western Europe. Mandatory Palestine experienced recurring waves of violence between Zionists and Arabs. And meanwhile, in the country of Western Europe, whose Jewry was the most assimilated and integrated into its society, Jews would now experience that they were indeed not safe, regardless of all efforts to assimilate, integrate, and convert. And so, in the next past inside the present, I will talk about how the hell of the Shoah, of the Holocaust, that the Nazis unleashed on the Jewish people of Europe resulted in the creation of the state of Israel. Today's segment was largely informed by Ilan Pape's 10 Myths About Israel and his other book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, as well as Avi Schleim's Politics of Partition, if you want to read up on the topics discussed. And Elon was on the show, I think, in 2007. And I believe next week on Patreon, we will be sharing that interview for our listening audience yeah. because uh, you have been using that as your reference for your past inside the present. Great job, by the way. Really enjoying these uh, monologues that you've been doing. Really appreciate it, Seb. And uh, en you. enjoy the rest of your week. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Where the coolest musicians get their news, this is hell will please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share the rest of our listeners answers if there are any more uh there are no more all but right. this week's question from hell is now that henry kissinger is dead who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep henry company in hell so the answers i liked the most were jamie k saying andy hildebrand inventor of yes. auto tune though i guess that's more a crime against humanity 
which is good. Slug saying Donald Dump, <laughs> simply considering the possibility of his re-election as president of the United States causes me to shudder. His joining Kissinger would save everyone around the world a lot of suffering. Uh, Slug then uh, includes a link to an Intercept article by past guest Jeremy Scahill. And the headline for that story is the prosecution of Trump is a good first step. How, now, do Bush. New York's case against Trump would be a mere footnote of history if the U.S. actually believed in holding presidents and other top officials accountable. I also liked Adam A. saying uh, Dick effing Cheney, ideally <laughs> violently. Nick E. saying with no tongue-in-cheek, Oliver North. Jeff Dorchin saying Steve Urkel, he knows what he did. That's a really <laughs> good so one, good, but he Jeff. can't win because he is a staff member. Any of those really stick out to you, Will? Oh, man. I don't know. It's a tight field. I also liked hair emails. <laughs> I don't know. It was some nonsense, but it tickled me. It did tickle me too. Um, what are you feeling? Uh, either Andy Hildebrand or yeah. uh, Dick Effing Cheney, ideally violently. I'm not too sure. Uh, it's it's a hard one because one's a little off topic, but made me laugh. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Andy yeah, Hildebrand. Andy Hildebrand. So Jamie yeah. K, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just shoot us an email, tell us what your mailing address is and what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want when you go to thisishell.com and click on support. Just tell us which piece you want. We'll get it in the mail to you as soon as we can. Congratulations, Jamie. You've won before, but it's been a few years. My answer to this week's question from hell, now that Henry Kissinger is dead, who is the next war criminal you'd like to see keep Henry company in hell? My answer is... Everyone who attended Kissinger's 100th birthday party. To find out who attended the party of a war criminal who was responsible for millions of civilian deaths, check out the writing by Jonathan Geyer at New York Magazine. He has two articles you got to read. One is, I crashed Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday party. The elite love him, but for some reason they won't say why. And Geyer's uh, follow-up story, The Four Final Acts of Henry Kissinger, Accountability Never Came. Only more birthday cake. Thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, which interviews are we playing next week on the Best of 2023? Kicking things off on Monday, uh, we'll be playing our May interview with Claire Provost and Matt Kennard on their book, Silent Coup, How, America, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. And then on Tuesday, we'll be sharing our June conversation with anthropologist Alex Hinton on his Sapiens article, Two Myths Fueling the Conservative Right's Dangerous Transphobia. And then finally, we wrap up the week by playing our July talk with Emmy O'Brien on her book, Family Abolition, Capitalism and the Communizing of Care. I really enjoyed that, that conversation. Was really cool she conversation. was really awesome. Also, Seb Vopper will be back on to share another past inside the present. We'll have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver a moment of truth. A huge thank you to this week's producers, Will Ippen and Chris Coolfan. Thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, and Jeff, and special thanks to Rebecca Ridenauer for sitting in. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, or tomorrow's today is Thursday. Talk to you tomorrow, Friday on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell when we remember what we've learned over the last couple of months here on this is hell and we will be playing one of our favorite interviews from 2009 about how NAFTA was destroying Mexico. 
This is how office hours, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, happen every Wednesday night at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue. But this coming Wednesday, Wednesday, December uh, 20th, on Winter Solstice Eve, it's not just This Is Hell Office Hours, it's our annual This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which will be held during our regularly scheduled office hours. Again, at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, beginning around 6 p.m. that evening. Finally, This Is Hell has been named a finalist as Chicago's Best Podcast in the Chicago Reader Best of 2023 Readers Poll. Also, your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, has been nominated as a finalist in the same poll as Best Radio DJ. You can now vote for us. Look, I know I'm not a DJ. You can vote for us under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. Right now, polls are open through January 14th, and the winners will be announced sometime in February. So if you want to really bother the hell out of Chicago's corporate establishment media, vote for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell as Best Podcast and me, Chuck Mertz, as Best Radio DJ under the City Life category at chicagoreader.com slash best. There is only one way you can get... There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you this year here on This Is Hell, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>